Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com acast, and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com acast. Hello and welcome to The Hedgehog and the Fox, the podcast that's curious about curiously good books. This week, A New Life of Geoffrey Chaucer, the 14th century poet who's regarded as the father of English literature. Though that's a stereotype my guest Marion Turner wants to ditch. I think a lot of the ways that we think about Chaucer now are very problematic. So particularly the idea of the father of English literature, which immediately makes people think that he's a bit boring and that he's an old man and that he's a patriarch and that he's didactic, you know, that he's just about teaching you certain things. And in fact, that's the opposite of what Chaucer actually was like, because I think in his poetry, Chaucer is saying all the time, there is not a fixed meaning, there is not a moral. At the end of The Nun's Priest's Tale, he says, taketh the morality, good man. And this is a poem which is absolutely refused to give a moral which has gone all over the place dizzying array of genres so the moral is go and find your own moral think for yourself he's not a didactic poet at all he's a poet who is empowering the reader and what about Chaucer as sober patriarch Marion Turner wants to overturn that too that only comes about in the 15th century after Chaucer's death. You know, in his life, he was all kinds of different things. You know, he was a fashionable teenager. He was a diplomat. He was someone who travelled to Spain, to Italy repeatedly. He was living on the walls of the city when the rebels flowed under the gate in 1381. He saw the deposition of the king. He travelled all around the country as well as all over Europe. He lived in a global trading environment in the city of London. He was a parent. You know, he was a father father of a daughter and sons, not the father of English literature. And I'm interested in all those different aspects of his life, which I think are not very familiar to many people today. Far from seeing himself as founder of the canon, the Chaucer who emerges from the pages of this biography is one who challenges the idea of authority, stability, fixity of meaning. In his dream vision, The House of Fame, the poet finds himself in the eponymous house. Chaucer shows us how random the canon is. So authors' names are etched in ice, and if they're on the sunny side, they melt away. And if they're on the shaded side, they survive. But it's arbitrary, and fame herself is an arbitrary figure. So Chaucer mocks the idea of authority. And then at the very end, the Geoffrey figure comes to the House of Rumour, this chaotic, dynamic place where all kinds of stories and gossip are whirling around. And these ordinary people come along, pardoners, shipmen, pilgrims, who have bags full of stories. And Chaucer is really showing us that Everyone has a story to tell, that it's important to listen to all kinds of different voices and that it is not enough 
only to read on your own in your room, just to read the old classics that people have already validated for you, that you have to think for yourself. Marian Turner teaches English at Jesus College, Oxford. Her biography has been praised by critics as carefully nuanced, hugely illuminating, perspicacious and often slyly humorous, meticulously researched, radical, rich, thought-provoking and readable, and magnificently scholarly. One critic concluded, this meaty new biography is likely to be the best book on the subject for decades to come. So when I met Marian, I asked her how, having been fascinated by Chaucer for years, she decided to embark on a biography. So I first of all assumed that if I did a biography, it would have to be a cradle-to-grave biography. And I remember sketching out the chapters and... They started with the early years and they ended with the late years. And I just thought, I don't want to do this. This is so boring. I can't see how I can make this different. And I actually went for a walk. Um, it, it, it sounds like, like such a cliche, but I did. I went for a walk around the meadow, around Christchurch Meadow here in Oxford. And I walked around and I thought about it. And I did have a road to Damascus moment um, where I decided that I would try to do this biography and I would do it through places and spaces and for me that completely transformed the idea of doing the biography and that was when I decided I was going to do it because what I realised was that if I approached Chaucer's life through spaces and places then I could make this a biography of the imagination. I could be more flexible in how I cut across his life. So although the biography is roughly chronological, you know, it's in three sections that move roughly through sections of his life because I am interested in the development of his imagination across time. But at the same time I often want to follow strands that are not strictly bound by chronology and by thinking about spaces and places I could really focus on what he saw, what kind of structures he lived in and how that affected his sense of his own identity and his audience's sense of their identities, what his metaphors actually meant in terms of the material objects that he saw with which he was familiar. And so for me, that was a really productive way of approaching biography. And the places are varying. So some of them are actual places such as Genoa and Florence or Reims and Calais or Navarre, places that he went to. Some of them are structures, so things like the great household, which doesn't exist in the same way today and really lets us think about the public and the private life. And some are more abstract still, so the cage, the Milky Way, peripheries. So places that he talks about perhaps metaphorically or that he speculates about. So that structure allowed me to look at a range of different aspects of his life and also helped me to crystallise in my mind that that I wasn't going to try to make this a biography of the emotional life. That ultimately, I think when you're writing about someone for whom you do not have private letters, diaries, memoirs, you can't interview their grandchildren, I don't think you can get at their private emotional life the way that you can for a more recent subject. But I think you can get at their imagination and that was what I wanted to focus on. So you've you've got his texts, obviously, as what what we have um, received of his imaginative life. But... I mean, the immediate problem that occurs to me with spaces and places is places have changed and spaces have vanished in some cases. So how do you begin to to reconstruct those in order to to use them to approach the imaginative life? So it varies a lot according to the different kinds of places and spaces. So in terms of the the actual spaces, some of them have changed far less than we might imagine. And much of Europe 
still has a great deal of its medieval architecture and its medieval art. So for me, it was really important to do what some biographers call footstepping, you know, to follow in the footsteps of Chaucer, to make trips to the places that he went to. And when I went to Navarre, I mean, I went there in February, which was the time that he went there. And that did really help me to think about what it was like for him arriving over the mountain passes across the Pyrenees into Roncesvalles and then going down into Olite, which is still very much a medieval town. You can stay in the castle where Chaucer's safe conduct was issued, for instance, and really get a sense of what kinds of things he was seeing, how similar and how different it was to what he was used to. So when you go somewhere like that, partly you see how so much of the iconography and the art is very similar across Christian Europe. But at the same time, when I went there and I had to go there to see this, I could see that the road of the Jews was right next to the palace where Chaucer's safe conduct was issued. And I could get a much better sense of what it was like for Chaucer to go to this multicultural society where there were Jewish and Muslim populations living alongside the Christian ruling population. So going to the actual place helped me enormously there. But also, of course, you can do a lot with the extraordinary records that have survived. So records in general across medieval Europe. And we have about 500 life records of Chaucer, you know, far more than we have for, say, Shakespeare, for example. You know, he is very well documented. But also for me, I would often take those records and put them back into context. So look at all the other records that surrounded them. So say for that Navarre trip, look at all the other records that were issued by the Chancellery of Navarre when Chaucer was there in that week. See what else I could find out. And there are so many records that partly it's about what questions you're asking, which help you to get inside the spaces. So say when I was thinking about the nunnery or the household that are not there anymore, you can still find out an enormous amount through the records. And then other spaces are often more to do with metaphor anyway. So I'm looking at the literary texts, at philosophical texts, at looking about at how writers are writing about the Milky Way, the experience of imagining flight, those kinds of things. So so I've got such different kinds of spaces and places that the research would often be be somewhat different depending on what chapter I was doing. To take the example of the circumstances into which he was born, I guess a conventional biography would give you the conjectural year and the, the family history and the, the family status. What you're doing is, is, is really quite different and, and sort of really brings that world alive in a different way without appearing at all novelistic or, or cheap. And I just wondered, can you say how you, how you sort of bring the reader into that world using those methods that you've just described? What I try to do is I try to make sure that the reader does still have all of that kind of information. So if we think about his early life, for example, you do still get the information in quite a lot of detail about his grandparents, his parents, where he's born. But in order to then think about what that's like. I look at things like, so records that about what Vintry Ward London was like at the time. So records, some of them might not directly relate to Chaucer, but they tell us, for example, about a book that was stolen around the time that Chaucer was born. You know, I use that anecdote at the very start of the, of the first chapter and Chaucer's stepfather was involved in that case, for step-grandfather was involved in that case, for example. Or I look at the immigrants who are in that ward and talk about the fact that the ward in which Chaucer was born had more immigrants than any other ward. I look at the kinds of products that were being sold at that time. So what kinds of spices could people buy? Well, in fact, they could buy products that had come from as far afield as Indonesia and had come right across the Silk Roads and all kinds of trading routes to get to London. So I try to approach a space 
through a whole variety of different kinds of documents, some of them literary, some of them bureaucratic, all kinds of things. And sometimes I would also be looking at the actual spaces and places, but that would depend. So I've tried to to bring the, the world alive for the reader by trying to think, I suppose, about all the different senses, but doing that very much through what's recorded, through the material records that are left or through the written records that are left, not through a, I think it was like this kind of approach. And the reader gets a very strong sense of a world in movement. I mean, in the most literal sense with commodities, he's born into the wine trade and with wine and, as you said, spices and all sorts of things, all sorts of trade and both the, the literal, but also the metaphorical. So the, there's, a, there's, there's a commerce of ideas. There's, there's a sense, and as you, the subtitle of your book makes clear, there's a very strong connection with Europe and the London that Chaucer and the milieu that Chaucer inhabits is very much open to that world. So I have so much to say in response to that. <laughs> so I think your point about the world in movement applies to so many different aspects of my book. You know, one of my chapters, I talk about the Thames and I talk about the fact that the river is always changing and always the same. You know, the things that are always coming in and then the way that we have continuities. So I think Chaucer's life, he's born at a time when there is greater social movement, greater social mobility. You know, after the plague, which hits England and Europe when Chaucer's about six, there is more social mobility. So there's all kinds of change and flux, more people moving around right across society. So there's that kind of background of movement. And then Chaucer himself travels, of course, far more than most ordinary people would at this time. He is a privileged person. He's the son of a merchant. Merchants themselves were traveling a great deal from the continent to to England. Chaucer's father, a wine merchant, is fundamentally involved in the movement of goods between continental Europe and England. Chaucer moves socially when he then gets positions in great households and eventually with the king, and he moves literally. So he ha- he travels a great deal. In his early life, he's travelling as a soldier in the Hundred Years' War, and then later on, mainly he's mainly travelling for peace. He travels to talk, not to fight, mainly later in life, on those trips to Italy, to Spain, to France. So he is moving a great deal. But Chaucer also, in his texts, is very interested in the idea of movement. And of course, the metaphor of pilgrimage is the fundamental structure of the Canterbury Tales itself. But I think when I tried to trace how his imagination developed, at the end of the second part of the book, I talk about the roads not taken for Chaucer, the different poetic roads that he could have taken and that we see him thinking about. So when I talk about the garden, I write about the fact that when he writes the prologue to the legend of good women, this is a a courtly text and we can see aspects of it that do lead on to the Canterbury Tales but it's also a world of stasis where you are in one place and you essentially have to write the same kind of text, the text that your patron wants you to write and Chaucer very deliberately doesn't go down that path. He chooses to be very experimental, to write lots of different kinds of texts and to write texts that are literally about movement, about moving through space and why that matters, how we move through different kinds of psychological spaces as we see in texts such as the House of Fame or the Parliament of Fowls as well as the Canterbury Tales, that importance of moving through space but also the idea of of a movement through through different genres, of movement through different ideas and I think for Chaucer he really is so passionate about the idea of changing perspective which is 
both literal and metaphorical, the importance of not being stuck in one place because then you only see things from one perspective. You know, Chaucer, I think, saw early experiments in perspective by artists such as Giotto, which is a really interesting kind of corollary to what he's doing in his own text. I think what Chaucer wants to get across to us more than anything else is that where you're standing matters. So get up and move around and look at things from different points of view, which is exactly what we see in the Canterbury Tales. And the first poet to begin a poem in English with the pronoun I. Yes, indeed. And one of the great ironies is that that is, of course, a translation of the je. So that's a really great example of the way in which Chaucer is innovative. He's doing new things, but he's also part of an international world where what he does is enabled by his multilingual reading. And so although he is doing new things in English, he would never have thought of himself as an original, in inverted commas, poet who's doing things on his own, separate from a cultural world. You know, what he's doing is writing poems that are fundamentally influenced, first of all, by Latin and French texts, and then, as he moves on through his life, by Italian texts. And, of course, that is enabled by his literal journeys to Italy, where he almost certainly got these manuscripts, and then he was able to to change English poetry, but always through international collaboration. Am I right in thinking it, it wasn't a foregone conclusion that he would become an English poet? I mean, there were other options open to him in terms of writing. He may, I mean, there's, there's a possibility he wrote in French. And it wasn't like there was a long tradition of English verse which he was joining. Yeah, so it would have been more usual for him to have written in French because of the kind of person that he was. So although we do have an unbroken tradition of poetry in English you know, going back to the 6th and 7th century, at the same time, England in the 14th century was a trilingual society. Everyone who was educated, every man who was educated, was fluent in English, in French and in Latin. And although other people are writing poetry in English, the kind of poetry that Chaucer first starts writing, so his first poem, the one that begins with the I, the Book of the Duchess, is a poem in the style of the Dit Amoureux. And that kind of poem, the French love, love narrative, had only been written in French before. There weren't English examples. It would have been very surprising for a courtly audience to have this macho-influenced poem being written in English. So in the later 14th century, Various different poets are writing in English. So we might think of Langland writing Piers Plowman, the poet of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight and Pearl. Also someone such as John Gower, who writes three great poems, one in English, one in French and one in Latin. Chaucer experiments a great deal in English. So he only writes in English, as far as we know. And he really pushes the boundaries of what English could do. One interesting aspect of his choosing to write in English is that he is joining an international trend. So largely he is following in the footsteps of the Italians. So a generation earlier, Dante chose to write in Tuscan and also wrote defences of the fact of writing in the vernacular rather than Latin. And then Boccaccio, Chaucer's greatest influence, also wrote in Tuscan in the vulgar tongue. And of course, if you write in your vernacular, you make your text accessible to a greater range of people, also more accessible to women. And I think that when Chaucer wrote in English, it did allow his text to be more accessible, but it also allowed him to be more experimental because he was seeing 
what can be done in this language. In one of his short poems, he says at the end, it's so hard to write in English because we haven't got any good rhymes. But of course, what he's really showing is that he can invent those rhymes. He invents words, he borrows words. You know, one of my favourite examples is that he's so newfangled that he invents the word newfangled. Or at least we have the first recorded use of the word newfangled from Chaucer. And he also experiments formally in terms of his poetry. So he invents the iambic pentameter, the tensor, five stress line that became the absolute building block of English poetry. Now he did that in response to reading Italian poetry and the Italian 11 syllable line which was also a line with stresses in it and that helped him to develop this new poetic line in English. So I think he was very interested in that kind of innovation and experimentation that he could do in English. And astonishingly he does all this at the same time as holding down a a day job you know controlling the tax for the wall trade. Yeah, it's really infuriating, isn't it? So as far as we know, Chaucer was never paid a penny for his poetry, for his writing. We have no evidence that he was ever paid at all for writing. He always had day jobs and he had a a variety of different jobs, some of them seeming more interesting than others. So his main job was as a customs officer in the wool trade, which was England's main trade at this time. You know, wool is really England's only imported export at this time. But he also worked as clerk of the King's Works, which meant he was in charge of the upkeep of the fabric of the buildings of that the King owned, such as the Tower of London, for instance. Um, but he also at different times went on missions for the King, negotiating both marriages and trade alliances across Europe. So he did a variety of different things, but his writing was something that As far as we know, he did because he wanted to. So, of course, it's possible, especially with his early poetry, that he was writing with a patron in mind. So certainly the Book of the Duchess has a connection with John of Gaunt. It's written about John of Gaunt's first wife, about her death. But we don't know that he was paid for that. And throughout his life, he seems to have to have enjoyed writing what he wanted to write. So I think it was a positive for him ultimately not to be writing for a patron, not to have to write what someone else wanted. And throughout his poetry, he sometimes talks about the problems of a hegemonic voice. So when there is an authoritative voice that won't allow people to speak against that voice. And in The Legend of Good Women, he mocks that, the idea of what do you do if you have to write what other people tell you to do. And in some of the Canterbury Tales as well, he writes about what happens to truth tellers when they are in the court of tyrants. So that's what The Mansible's Tale is about, for instance. One of his sources and antecedents is Petrarch, who was writing for tyrants, who was writing at the Visconti court, who were some of the most notorious tyrants of the time living in northern Italy. And I think for Chaucer, Chaucer is a poet who wants to write what he wants or wants to write a variety of things. He's extraordinarily diverse in the genres and the ideas that he writes. So I think for him, in some ways, it was a good thing not to be paid for writing. And you have a fascinating chapter on this idea of resisting the hegemonic voice in which you relate it to what was actually going on in Parliament at the time and the role of the Speaker in Parliament. And I thought it was absolutely fascinating because you you talk about how he is re- resisting this and at the same time trying to find from where the poetic voice for him most authentically comes. So can you say how you how you relate those two very different spheres? So Parliament changed a great deal during Chaucer's lifetime. So in particular, in 1376, we have what was called the Good Parliament. 
And that was the parliament at which we first see a speaker emerging. Of course, we still have a speaker today, but this was the first time that a speaker was elected. And this was also the first time that parliament moved to impeach people, so to impeach the king's advisers. So these were really revolutionary changes. And what was important in 1376 about the emergence of the speaker was that it allowed the commons to be more powerful. So in the 14th century, there was a lords and a commons, and the lords was the more powerful house. The commons, however, did have a lot more power than the third estate tended to have in other European countries. England did have a a strong tradition of the importance of the parliamentary commons, but they weren't as important as the lords, and they could be divided, divided and ruled. But by electing a speaker, they said, you cannot divide us, we will speak with one voice, we all think this. And the lords hated that. The lords said, no, we won't answer accusations unless they are brought by an individual. But the parliament held firm and they were able to maintain this idea of speaking with one voice. Now, the other brilliant aspect of the development of the idea of the speaker is that the speaker also is able to have a kind of deniability. So to be safer, because rather than being an individual who's putting their head above the parapet, the speaker says, well, I am speaking for other people. They, you know, I can be corrected if I'm wrong. This isn't my opinion. I'm just speaking for everyone else. So I think these innovations were really interesting for Chaucer in terms of thinking about the development of different kinds of voices. Because in the Canterbury Tales, he is fascinated by the idea of insurgent voices, of people asserting their right to speak and saying, actually, we won't be crushed or silenced by the voices of more important people. And that is essentially what the Canterbury Tales frame is about. So the Canterbury Tales frame starts with an authoritative voice and then the lower class voices say, we have the right to speak as well and we're not going to speak in order. We're not going to wait till it's our turn. We're not going to be in that hierarchy. The drunken miller says, I'm going to speak now after the night's tale. And after that, order is never re-established. We have an organic movement of tale tellers. And Chaucer, at various times in the Canterbury Tales, does directly quote from the protestation, as it was known, that the speaker used, where he said, you know, I'm not to blame, I put this under correction. Now, that's something that we have seen in different forms, other authors doing something similar. But Chaucer directly uses these words of the speaker. And so I think he is very much influenced by what's going on in Parliament and by this idea of the insurgent voice, the right of these people to speak. And also the idea of speaking not only for for yourself, but for a group, which is also partly this idea of the Miller's Tale, the Cook's Tale, the Wife of Bard's Tale. These characters are not fully formed individuals. They're not novelistic kind of of characters with interior lives in in the way that we might see in, in some other kinds of texts. But they're not just stock stereotypes either. They're kind of representatives who speak partly for themselves, but also for a broader group. And Parliament went on to be very important in Chaucer's life. So he himself did sit as an MP in Parliament in 1386. And there were very notorious and important parliaments in 86, 88, and then 97, which was the the Revenge Parliament. So Parliament was a very important force across Chaucer's life. And lots of people were talking about Parliament. And I think it certainly did influence what, what he was doing in his poetry. You've already mentioned Dante and Boccaccio and French poets like Machaut having an influence on, on Chaucer. Something that listeners may be less, or someone that listeners may be less familiar with, is Boethius and his work, The Constellation of Philosophy. And I think you, you say that was one of the most influential texts on Chaucer and he produced a translation of it. 
and I know that that plays a part in your sort of view of his of his sort of spatial poetics. And can you can you just and I know you devote quite a lot of time to this in the book, but can you just sketch out why you think this work was so important to him? So Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy was one of the most important works, not only for Chaucer, but for all late medieval thinkers across Europe. It's an absolutely foundational work. So written in Latin, it was written in what was called prosimetrum. So some parts in prose, some parts in in poetry. Many different authors translated it and Chaucer was one of those. So he translates it into English in the 1380s, just before he writes Troilus and Crusade. And Boethius's text brought to later authors the idea of the debate form, for instance. So the idea, so it's, it's about a prisoner who is in despair. Lady philosophy, a female authoritative figure, visits him and advises him. And they discuss issues really around free will and fate. What can we control in our lives? What can we not control in our lives? It's actually a very good text for, for, for self-help and mindfulness in all kinds of ways, I think, because ultimately what, you know, one thing that that text does, I mean, that sounds like a real dumbing it down, but in fact, really fundamentally, what one, what one thing that Boethius's text does is it talks about the fact that we cannot control external things in our lives, but we can control our own responses to them, which is the kind of thing that I say to my kids all the time, you know, control your own response to it. We can't, we do have free will about how we respond to things. We do have free will to think about, about what matters in our lives. And so Boethius kind of comes out of his despair and his psychological imprisonment through this debate with Lady Philosophy. So Chaucer translated this text, but he also uses it in lots and lots of his of his tales and other writings. It's really foundational to Chaucer's thought and, as I say, to the thought of many of his contemporaries and predecessors. But one of the things that that I was interested in was how Chaucer's philosophical position is actually quite different from Boethius's. So Boethius is more interested in detaching oneself from the material conditions of life, in thinking about how the soul can be free from the senses, how the soul can reach its true home, which is outside the world. And Chaucer is much more interested in what we do in the world itself. I think as a poet, Chaucer is not interested in thinking about the spiritual life. He's interested in religious life in various ways, but he's not interested in Neoplatonic philosophy. So he's often interested in thinking about what we do in this world. And actually, he's much more positive about the material aspects of this world and in thinking about positive things about the enclosure of the body. You know, he doesn't think that we should dismiss the body and just think about the soul. He thinks we should, I believe that what Chaucer is talking about in many of his texts and in his response to Boethius is about how we can harness the body and use our time on earth. We don't just have to be focusing on on an eventual escape. You're the first female biographer Chaucer has had. And any biographer, male or female, has to deal with what you call, I think, the most problematic of the the life evidence, which is the accusation of rape, which was made against him. How do you come to that evidence and what do you do with it? So there's a life record in which someone called Cecily Champagne releases Chaucer of further actions for her raptus. 
Now, for a long time, people debated about what that word raptus meant, because in some contexts, it means abduction rather than a sexual rape. But now most scholars agree that in the context in which it appears here, it is an accusation of sexual rape. And many critics have found this very difficult at from different ends of the spectrum. So some people who say, well, he couldn't possibly have been a rapist. And he writes all these wonderful things about women. He's so sympathetic to women. He can't have been a rapist. It must have been a mistake. And you even get some critics saying, you know, really toxically problematic things, you know, you know such as maybe she changed her mind afterwards and then said it was rape. And, and, and things for which there is absolutely no evidence and really betrays a certain... Um, prejudice on the part of people who are saying things like that. On the other end of the spectrum, you have people saying, well, if the accusation was made, it must be true. Chaucer was a rapist and we shouldn't be reading his poetry if he was a rapist. So you have that extreme as well. So I think that one of the things we have to think about is the relationship between life and works, because I don't think that because someone writes sympathetically about women, that means that they could not have raped woman in their own life and I think life and works do not connect together in that way. I think though that the evidence that we have leaves us with an uncertainty because the 14th century legal situation is different from the legal situation that we had today have today. So in the 14th century you could make an accusation of rape without producing evidence, without producing testimony. You said a form of words and you purchased a writ. So it was very different. And that there are examples of people making those accusations where it later becomes clear that the crime was not sexual. We don't know if that's what happened. So I think as a biographer, you do have to accept that there is an uncertainty here. And that's not something that's very easy to, to, to rest with. And I think if I can also just say something else about about gender, that there's lots of other aspects of Chaucer's life which biographers have not been interested in up till now, which have a gendered dimension. So no one before had ever done any work on Chaucer's daughter, for instance. And I, I found a lot of interesting things about where she lived. I think people have not often not been that interested in the fact that he had a, a female employer as his first employer or in things about his, his mother and his wife. And I think there are lots of aspects of the women in his life which we can find out, which I feel I found out about and that other people have not been interested in before. Yeah, you really bring them out of the shadows, I thought, the, the women in, in Chaucer's world. I tried to, so I'm glad that came across. I think particularly his daughter Elizabeth, for whom we, we just have this, these records of her going into certain nunneries. And I think in the past, people often just dismissed those records, thought, oh, right, she went into the nunnery and that was it, no more to say. And when I went and investigated these nunneries, they were really interesting places. And the first one that she went into when she was a teenager was in London, just a five minute walk from Chaucer's rooms above Oldgate. So her nunnery was St. Helens in Bishopsgate. And you can still go to the church there, though the nunnery is, does not exist anymore. But I found out lots of records about that nunnery and about the kind of place it was. There were these records written slightly afterwards, but about the long-term practice there, which talk about the fact that the nuns are dancing and reveling too much. And the dean says to the prioress, you've got to sleep in your dormitory and stop having so many overnight guests and only have parties on days when you're allowed to have parties. And it's really interesting. And I think that none of that means that they weren't also devout. Of course, they could also be devout and religious, but have 
had fun as well. And you can see that for a 14th century woman, going into a prestigious nunnery could be in many ways a very good option. You know, we have evidence that when you were in a nunnery, you were able to have much more access to books often. And also, you know, nunneries were importing figs, for instance. You know, they could have a very nice diet. The more important nuns were running businesses, owning property, doing all kinds of things that it was often quite hard for medieval women to do. And you were asking me before about some of the ways in which I investigated the spaces. Lots of the documents about that nunnery describe the space in a great deal of detail. The fact that there, there were two choirs in the church, there were the ordinary people on one side and the nuns in the other. And the dean writes and recommends that particular kinds of divisions are put up in the spaces, particular kinds of doors and things, as he obviously connects the arrangement of space very much to the morality of the nuns. So there's lots of ways in which in the documents we also see how aware people are of how the spaces in which you live affect the kind of life that you live. I wondered, you, you've spent so long with Chaucer and you've traced his footsteps and you've traced him in the record and you've recreated his world. Did your view of the man change as a result of spending so long in his company and in his world? Are there any particular aspects of him that you found altered as a, as a result? I think as a literary critic, before I wrote the biography, I knew much less about the younger Chaucer. I was much more aware of Chaucer in his mature years when he was doing a lot of writing. And what really changed was thinking about him as a teenager and as a young man. So the things that I found out about the clothes that he was wearing in the great household of Elizabeth de Burr, how fashionable he was, the things that I found out about his trip to Navarre, for example, thinking about his his marriage and his life as a father in his earlier years. So particularly what he was doing in the in the 1360s, 50s, 60s, early 70s, that kind of time. And that was so interesting to me to think about, to try to get inside his head and think about what it might have been like as a relatively young man you know, riding across the Pyrenees in winter. You know, what must that have been like? What must it have been like to move from the security of your parents' house where you had been this important child who had servants and apprentices in the house who were less important than you to then go as a teenager and become a page, a relatively unimportant person in a much more important household? So for me... It helped, writing the biography really helped me to think about how we are not the same person across our lives. And that might seem like an obvious point, but in fact, I think we often tend to think about who was this person. Well, I was not the same person when I was 15 as I am today when I'm 43. And in 15 years, I'm sure I'll be very different from the person I am now. And so thinking about how we change and how when you are thinking about an author, he didn't think the same thing. I'm sure at every point in his life he changed and trying to trace how his imagination developed and how the mature Chaucer, actually his interests did change in various ways as I track in my book. His concerns changed as he grew up. And I think that is really a very important thing for us all to bear in mind that we are not one thing. I was talking to Marion Turner about her new biography of Chaucer, subtitled A European Life. It's out now from Princeton University Press. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 50 others in the series at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Confidence starts with loving who you are. And when your skin feels nourished and glows on the outside, you naturally radiate confidence from the inside. Give your skin a glow-up with Osea's clinically proven Mega Moisture Duo. This ultra-hydrating body care features two of Osea's bestsellers, Andaria Algae Body Oil and Andaria Collagen Body Lotion. These seaweed-powered heroes use skincare-level ingredients normally reserved for your face for results you can see and confidence you can feel. Osea has been making clean, clinically proven seaweed-infused face and body care products for over 28 years. This luxurious skincare is vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Glow from the inside out. Get 10% off your first order with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com, code GLOW.